Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Welcome everyone to the Table Dallas. We're glad that you're here with us as we continue in our Lenten series entitled Descent, where we have been preparing for our Resurrection Sunday and the celebration of that by talking about some of the things perhaps that need to uh, to change in our life or need to be adapted in our life. And we've actually um, taken a little bit of a different approach here as we've... Um, tackled our text this season, and we've been using the acrostic idea, I-D-E-A, as our kind of framework for how we go about doing it. So uh, by way of reminder, what does the I-D-E-A and the acrostic stand for? Let's start with the I. What are we doing when we're dealing with the I? Introducing. Yeah, so we're introducing, we're doing questions, things that will begin to get us thinking more about what it is that we're going to be studying more in detail. Okay, that's the I. What is the D? Discovering. Discovering, yeah. So in this text, what are we what are we doing at this part with the text in discovering? Joannes, you know? We are determining what the text actually says. Like so these are the simple um, level one um, type questions. Sorry, I didn't mean to like throw one of the But uh, um, so we do that in the discovering process, okay? And then E is the explore. So we're exploring. What are we doing in exploring? Digging deeper. Yeah. To figure out what that really means. Yeah. So we're digging a little bit deeper. Each time we're asking questions, the questions get a little bit more difficult, a little bit more brain power needs to be exerted in order to kind of answer those types of questions. And then finally, the A is the apply. the applying piece, which is what are we doing here? Don't use the word apply because it's already in the <laughs> definition. Figuring out what, might we, what we might do differently. Right, yeah. So wrestling with, we like to use the term, wrestling with the implications, right? Mm-hmm. What do we do with something that was written so many years ago that wasn't written to us, but was written for us? So this is where we wrestle, right, with those implications. So that's what we'll be doing today. And it's fitting that it was just um, a beautiful weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, if you're joining us via podcast, uh, we are outside under the, the porch cover here, and it's a beautiful, sunny, warm day. And days like this, or two or three days in a row like this, make me think about, well, more than think about, um, it's time for spring cleaning, right? <laughs> Anybody else? A couple of us, like, so my wife was away visiting her mom this, this week, and so I thought, what a perfect time to do some spring cleaning, right? And for me, part of the spring cleaning is you have to change out your wardrobe, right? My closet, like I have to take all the winter stuff and kind of put it up, you don't do that? Is that me? I put the winter things in, okay, yeah. See, the people in tiny houses, they have an advantage. So moving the winter stuff kind of to the back, right? And then you want to get out your short sleeve shirts, your shorts, some of you are wearing shorts today, right? You want to do all of those kinds of things, right? To get ready, right? So I want you to think back, if you didn't do it this weekend, shame on you, no. Uh, No, 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 no. Think back to a time when you cleaned out your house. Now, hopefully, 
when I moved? This isn't gonna <laughs> process. Maybe, uh, maybe you just did it because it was well, it just needed to get done. Maybe you had some visitors coming, somebody coming to stay with you. It could just be spring cleaning anytime when you did some like serious cleaning, organizing, and so forth, right? If you could remember, how did it feel after you finished the cleaning? Relieved. Relieved? Did I hear the word relieved? Who said that? Yeah, relieved. Why, why do you feel relieved after you've done that? Because I could get my car in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> Very practical, yes. Uh, we had some friends visit us from Uganda, and they wondered why all Americans have garages, but they can't park their car in. <laughs> it is hilarious, because in Uganda, if you have a garage, you literally park your car in there. It's a security thing. Like you go in there, close the gates, and they're like, you all have garages. <laughs> but you park outside. Why? <laughs> it's like because we need the space for all of our things, our collections, right? All right. Anybody else besides relief? I would say unburdened. Unburdened. I like that. Good. What else? So tired. There's a lot of work to be done there. Good. What else? Accomplishment. Oh, go ahead. Accomplishment. A sense yeah. of accomplishment. You're getting ready to maybe be doing some moving soon, so you're going to have to go through all of that. Somebody else say something uh, back I was here? Saying, why can't it be this way all the time? This yeah. yeah. Oh, once it's clean, you're like, oh, yeah. We're going to keep it this way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, that happens. Like, Chris and I just did, like, redid our, cab, our, our countertops and stuff in the kitchen. It's like, now you have to keep them clean. Right? Like, oh, that's brand new. You have to kind of keep that clean, right? So, what does it feel like to get rid of junk or things? That you no longer need. What's that feel like? Needs the operative word. <laughs> Sorry? As it needs the operative word. Okay. How does that feel when you when you manage to get a two or three bags maybe to give to CCA or to pass along to somebody else who has children that are younger than yours or something like that? How does that feel? Well, it makes you feel better because someone else can use something that you're not using. Okay. So one man's junk is another person's treasure, treasure right? CCA makes a living on that, yeah. But it's good until you're like, oh man, I actually needed that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that one time in ten years when you need it, you're like, oh, it makes you question how you got to the place where you have so much stuff. Yes. Yeah, true, Mike. When when we moved and we were getting ready to move and everything, we had so much stuff that and we had to throw away a lot of stuff and give away a lot of stuff and I almost felt a sense of guilt for having so much stuff that never even got used. It's kind of strange the way we build houses and then we fill them up so we build a bigger house so that we can fill them up, right? That's true. Yeah, there is a certain sense. Okay, what else? Any other feelings when you uh, when you finally do that? Get an overall calm, calmness out, like chaos. Yeah, so it feels calm. Sense of order. Yeah, sense of order. Good. You feel like you get back to basics. As I like well. that. Yeah. Well, it's also nice to know where it is that that baby <laughs> yeah, exactly. that you've been looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, I can't find things after I clean. That's true. <laughs> so I love watching Tiny House Nation. We have some tiny. For those who are listening on podcast, we have a tiny house family here, and. Um, I love watching that because uh, watching people who are going from the big house, you guys did this, going from the big house down, watching them go into a room and then like he'll tape off like this blue line with painter's tape and he's like, everything you can bring, 
has to fit in here. Yep. And they have like a 1,600 square foot house or a 1,200 or whatever it is, right? And they're thinking and they're trying to pile their chairs and everything. And he just kind of comes in there and he's just like, <laughs> but right. But when you when you ask them afterward, that's the one thing I love. When they ask them afterward, no one said, "Oh, I really hate that I did this." Now, maybe there are some that wish they did it. I don't know, but they never are on the show, right? They always come back and they say, it was so cathartic, it was so good to be able to live so much simpler and all of that, right? So I think, like our homes, our spiritual lives also require some spring, queen, spring cleaning. And I think in lots of ways, this is what we're doing during the season of Lent, right? Our spiritual house having some cleaning going on. Uh, to make room for some new desires, some new habits that, that pursue Christ. And that's what our text today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is all about. So if you want to go ahead now and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at just the first 10 verses of this. Um, and as you've seen, we're using this idea method. So we've introduced the topic by talking about spring cleaning. And in this way, I think there's a spiritual spring cleaning of sorts that takes place here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And remember, in the discovery phase, and we'll kind of move through this relatively quickly, we're just trying to discover what does the text actually say. So we're literally regurgitating, if you will, we're repeating back so that, we sh that we're all on the same page about what it is that the text is saying. So somebody, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, and we read from the CEB if it's possible, so that we're all on the same page. Therefore, get rid of all ill will and all deceit, pretense, envy, and slander. Instead, like a newborn baby, desire the pure milk of the word. Nourished by it, you will grow into salvation, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now you are coming to him as a living stone, even though this stone was rejected by humans, from God's perspective, it is chosen, valuable. You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thus it is written in scripture, look, I am laying a cornerstone in Zion, chosen, valuable. The person who believes in him will never be shamed. So God honors you who believe. For those who refuse to believe, though, the stone the builders tossed aside has become the capstone. This is a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You are coming because to they refuse to believe in the <laughs> word, <laughs> they stumble. It's okay. Indeed, this is the end to which they were appointed. <laughs> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are, a, you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
that was, that was <laughs> this is the word of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Yeah, I was like, wow. Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, it started reading for you. Is that right? That's awesome. I love that. I've actually not used that function in there. That's pretty Apparently cool. Apparently, there's a little tiny circle right down there. That you can touch and it starts reading this picture to you. I love it. That's great. All right, so remember now, when we're doing the discovering passage piece, we're, we're moving through it, and this is a great way to, to, you know, to do personal study. Part of what we're doing here at the tables, right, is we're allowing you, or I'm, I'm trying to teach you and encourage you and move you forward into uh, not relying on me to be your spiritual Sherpa, the one who carries all the heavy labor and does all the heavy work lifting, if you will, for the spiritual formation, and say... All right, so how do we do this? Here's a text, 10 verses. How do we do it? So we begin by simply discovering what it says. So in verses 1 through 3, let's focus there first. Peter identifies some things we need to put away. What are those things? Just call them out. Ill will. We have to put away ill will. Deceit. 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 Every pretense. Envy. Envy. Slander. Slander. Is that all? Yeah. All right. So it gives us five things. Now, the natural thing we'd want to do is like, okay, so what are all those things? What do they mean? All right, we'll just hold that. We'll get to those in a minute, right? Now we say, so now he's making an analogy, right? Mm -hmm. What is the analogy he's making in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3? What's the analogy? Be like a new baby. So he's comparing us that, that in our spiritual journeys, we should take the role of being a child or a newborn infant, okay? And then what does Peter say will be the source of nourishment for us if we are those infants, those newborn the word, infants? The word. the word, which is... When he's referring to the word, he's referring to... Yeah, the scriptures, yeah. right? In this case, he's talking about the actual written scriptures, right? Desiring those scriptures in the same way that a newborn baby, right back there, wants mama's milk, or milk, wants to be fed, right? All right, so now he expands upon that analogy in 4 through 8, both for Christians and for Christ. So he gives us some images, all right? So what are some of the images that he then expands in that analogy with? What are they? Just start calling them out. We are living stones, spiritual temples, Holy priesthood, chosen race, cornerstone, cornerstone. What else? Valuable. Yeah, we're valuable because we are God's own. I think it says right, God's own possession. Am I right? Yeah. And then does yeah a capstone? All right. Now, if you have your Bible that has notes, where are the three quotations from the First Testament? Do you see them? Isaiah. So you see there's an Isaiah one. What else? They're not all Isaiah, are they? We have a Psalm. What else? All right, so those are, those are hinge points for us, right? We say, okay, he's quoting from. So when we're getting ready to then later on interpret what these means deeper, we might have to go back and take a look at some of those things, right? Now, in verse 9, he details how the followers of Christ are different. All right? We talked about being living stones, being spiritual temples, holy priesthood, all of those things. What gives each of those phrases 
can I use the word like punch? What makes them like powerful? What makes them like stand out? Is there anything in common about all of those that just gives them punch? So he elevates each and every one of those above what is normal, even further than that. Okay. So a chosen race, a okay. royal priesthood, a holy nation. All right. So he's putting an adjective. So he's putting a descriptor in front of them. Good. What else? What else do we notice? That that all implies elevation. All right. So it'd be a lifting up or an elevation. Good. It's also speaking identity over you. It, it, it's making it's making an impersonal connection of you are this, you okay. are this, you are this. And that's what makes it punch, right? It's not just this general. It's like you are this, 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 right? And each one of them has some nuance that we'll look at, right? And then verse 10 sums up the message from this passage in that familiar quotation from the book of Hosea. So we have Isaiah, we have Psalm, we have Hosea, right? What does this summary, well, what is the summary in verse 10? And what does it proclaim about the people of God? What's the summary first? You are, you are now something that you were not previously, okay. which is a people, and um, you have received mercy. Okay. So you were something, and now you are this. And he's doing this parallel, right? You were this, you're now this, you were this. Now you're this, you weren't this, and now you're this, right? So he's summarizing it, right? And he's proclaiming something about the people of God. What is it? If we were to put that all together, his summary in verse 10 is that we are, choose your own word. All right, so we were ordinary, maybe, and now we're God's people. What else? We were strangers, and now we're family. Strangers, and now family. What else? Guilty, but now we receive mercy. All right, guilty, but now been given mercy. What else? We're chosen or elect. Or yeah, set apart as opposed to, you know, all blended in or however you want to phrase it like that. Okay. We're changed. We're, that's a good word for it. We're changed. We're different. Or at least he's applying that we should. We are different now. We should be living up to that difference, right? So that's now where we say, okay, so now we've looked at what does it actually say. That's the discovery piece, right? This is my problem with 90% of study materials that I find that you can go to the Christian bookstore and find or go online and resource. This is the study. Ta-da. Ta-da! And then they go, okay, you've, you've written these things down, right? Now they'll say something like there'll be an application question or two. I'm like, so, you know, what are we supposed to do? How do we get rid of deceit? Which is all fine. But there's some key elements here that we haven't even really begun to dig into about what it then means. Like, so what does it mean a little bit deeper, okay? So let's do that in our exploring, all right? So you ready to put your thinking caps on a little bit? Each question now gets a little, you know, a little bit leveling up, if you will. So Peter begins this chapter with the imagery of children and nursing mothers, right? You've seen that. Here's my question. Do we all start out in our faith journeys as newborn babies? And if so, how? If not, give me your reasoning why. So do we all start out in our faith journeys as newborn babies? If so, how? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't think that. Then why? Okay. But as you were, I got to celebrate 53 years ago yesterday. 
but that's when I got baptized. That's when I accepted the Lord. Um, I, I was only, well, I was only a few years old and, and stuff like that, but I was a baby, but there were other people that got baptized and they were adults and stuff. They were, they are also, I, I would consider babies. They are fresh in, in this new way of, of walking. All right, so yeah, you're, you're visualizing and you're, you're thinking of it in terms of of the newness, the the brand newness of it. Yeah, yeah. In, in the spiritual sense, yeah, not, yeah. not the way we move. Yeah, of course, right. He's not talking necessarily a physical. We, we, I think we understand that, right? Mm-hmm. It's an analogy, right? Yeah. We're as you know, if we're able to hear and understand these words, we're not a nursing child, right? Mm-hmm. No, but I think that no, unless you are becoming spiritual Christian, whatever you want to say, it, when you're a newborn baby. Because your worldview is changed, you're not, you're not coming in as fresh. So you always have a different perspective to retrain your brain. So I, I hear what, what I, if I hear you right, what you're suggesting is that depending upon when this happens in your life, if you're perhaps older or you've had you have more uh, life under your belt, you've already established a worldview of sorts. So now when you're approaching it, you're not coming so much from the tabla rasa, so to speak, of a, of a blank slate that comes from childhood and having to learn. You actually may have a different challenge, if I hear you right, because you have that worldview that you might have to then jettison or at least put it through the filter. Yeah, through that perspective. So for you, in that sense, it doesn't feel so much like being a newborn baby, although the action of jettisoning some of that stuff might feel that way because it can be... It can be really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, yeah, it's like it can throw your equilibrium off. I mean, you know, when you're trauma, trauma, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, it could be very traumatic, right? It's like, would you rather build a house from nothing or would you like to tear down a house and rebuild it? Right. So you're watching one of those rebuilding shows and they have this beautiful 110 year old house. I was watching this last night while I was waiting for Chris. Um, to, for her plane to come in, and you have this 110-year-old house that had been turned into a triplex. Mm-hmm. Like they did a lot of these things in this town, right? And they're trying to convert it back to a, to a one-family home, right, with maybe like a mother-in-law suite. But, you know, they give this huge budget. We've got $150,000 to make these renovations and get rid of two of the three kitchens and all of this, this, this. And then I just remember the contractor looked and said, there could be that much under the walls. Yeah. Like, you don't even see, right? So no matter what you do, as soon as you open up that wall, you are then obligated to bring everything that you touch up to code. So that can be, like, you talk about, like, mind-altering and, like, oh, my gosh, I have this huge budget, and I'm going to spend 100000 of it on stuff I don't even see. Yeah? Good. What else? Do all starter faith journeys as newborn babies? I started as a Christian, as a grown adult, and it was very challenging, and I still feel like I'm a teenager sometimes when it comes to my spiritual knowledge, because I didn't grow up in church like some people did, and so I have worldly views that I have to filter through the Bible to figure out what God's version of what my perception is. And that's interesting that you you say that because you said we have to kind of bring the Bible and use the Bible and filter things through the Bible. Remember the picture, the imagery here is 
that the source of nourishment, spiritual nourishment for us, is the Word of God, right? And we receive it like a newborn baby. So there's some imagery there, all right? I think we can all imagine what that imagery looks like. So what does that tell us about how we absorb the Word of God? I mean, does that imagery help us understand more about the role the Scripture is going to play? Because remember, it's like a newborn child who's desiring that milk. Mom, when baby's hungry, there ain't nothing in the way, right? It's like, give me my food or I'm going to keep screaming. Is that right? And we all know that. Say again. Scream the house down. Scream the house down. Why? I want my milk. So what's the imagery for us if we're to be like spiritual babies? And the word should be like that for us. What's the implication? That we should have a desire to be in the word all the time. And it's not a, oh, I'm having a life crisis, and so now I need to go find that one scripture that's going to help me. We should continuously be in the word and really feeding on what it is that God's trying to tell us on a daily, sometimes minute-by-minute basis. Yeah, I mean, it's that it gives the implication, at the very least, that on a regular basis... Daily sounds like a pretty straightforward answer. Most people want to eat every day. Right? So the implication being that we should feel the same way about the Word of God that we do about eating. And it should nourish you and help you grow in your spiritual life. It will do that. This is promise, right? If you do that, if you engage it in that way, it does produce. That's what produces the maturity. Just like milk makes the child grow, it's the word of God that allows us in our spiritual life to grow. What's challenging for me about this part of the verse is because the the action that it's commanding is desire and you can't make it, like it doesn't say be in the word, like that's something you can do, like you can't make yourself desire something. That's right, yeah, that's that's really getting into and parsing it down, right? It's not just, I'm doing this because I need it, but it's the desire, like you ought to have the desire, the same kind of a desire that's so natural in a child that it makes them scream when they're hungry. Yeah, how do we make that happen? That might be something we wrestle with when we get to the application piece. I mean, how do you... You can't force yourself. You're right. You can't force that. How do you create desire? So we'll hit that. Let's pause on that one and hold that for the application. But that's a great observation. Yeah. I think another another aspect of the imagery that is coming to me is uh, like not necessarily being an infant in so, in so far as newness, but raw dependence. Like you can't do anything I like for that. yourself. It has to be provided for you. And you need to be cared for by your spiritual family. That's a good one. Raw dependence. I like that. That's good. Yeah. I think enthusiastic about it, too. Enthu- I mean, you watch a child feed. Get out. Don't get between that baby and mama. And so, I mean, you know, for some of us that have been a Christian a long time, you know, reading scriptures stuff can become almost rote. It's almost. Check it off. You know. Yeah. Check it off. I did it today. But to have that enthusiasm, that desire, that, you know, you have to be careful. It's real easy to fall into just a routine. And then it means, to me, it becomes nothing. It's just a check mark. Right. Yeah. So in verse 4, 
he describes that Jesus is the living stone. Is that exactly how he says it in verse 4? Now you're coming to him as to a living stone. Here's my question. Is this image helpful for us in understanding who Jesus is and what he's all about? If so, why? If not, why not? Is this a helpful image for us? It's not really contemporary in terms of what people do for a living. And, and back then they had you know, craftsmen that worked with stone to build structures and Okay, so even for you, then, not so much. Okay. Even then, they didn't have living stones. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I got the stone piece. <laughs> I'm good. I'm solid. You know, stone conjures up images of strength. What else? Security. Like you put up a stone fence, a gate. Permanence. Permanence. Well, it's just also generally a building material. It's something that that you make things out of. Make something out of it. And then you throw in living. Well, there was, there was also the, like the stone back in the wilderness when the children of Israel were complaining about being thirsty, and uh, Moses with, with first time with the rod, and then the second time supposed to have just spoken to it. Hits it. Yeah. That that stone came to life with living water, so that they could stay alive. So, so I think when Paul is writing, I'm sorry, when Peter is writing. I think maybe that's part of what he's recalling. Like he's remembering some of these stories from the First Testament where exactly that. There's a lot of wilderness talk in this book. Totally. And the stones, stones crying out, stones talking, stones giving guidance, stones giving water, all of that idea is there. Not to mention, by the way, there's, a, there's one piece that we can't, uh, we can't totally miss here is that remember idols, the containers for the Elohim that people worshipped were typically made from stone, right? So he's he's kind of contrasting the the falseness, the fakeness versus the living stone. Like we actually have God embodied in Jesus, right? Anybody else find it helpful, not helpful? Jesus as the living stone? And by the way, then we're discuss. Then he goes on to describe us as what? A living stone. Living stone. So how does that, you know, sharing in that description does that help us? I think for me, when I think of a stone, I think it doesn't change. It is what it is. It may chip, but it doesn't change structure. But as a living stone, and when he describes us as a living stone, we're ever changing. As we're in the Word, and the Word begins to permeate in our life, we're always evolving and changing. So we're still sturdy and we still have strength, but we also have the ability to change and move and flow in the word. I would also say, like, I don't the the metaphor I think that that always comes to me with respect to like the cornerstone analogy is that um, in the the people of Israel placed a lot of emphasis on the physical structure of the temple as being sort of the house of their faith and religion but after Christ the the temple is not really the focal point anymore that God is building a temple out of his people his temple is us like there's not a physical thing anymore and I think that's exactly what Peter is building on right that this temple that was the, the place that housed God right 
has now shifted, and that building is now us. So, and so he's using that builder analogy that, that, remember, this is when we identify this isn't written to us, so we have to kind of dig a little bit deeper there, right? Um, when I hear the word living stones, the only thing that comes to mind is like hiking up in, up in the mountains and watching what water has done to the stone as it's carved its way through like the Paladuro Canyon or the Grand Canyon of those. I think of that almost like living stone because, you know, literally, I mean, literally, if you go back, you know, some years later, the stone is actually different. I mean, we may not be able to pick it up perceivably. It just depends on the volume of the water, I guess. But it's being changed by that water. And that's another imagery for the word, right, is the water, right? So you have that, that piece that's there. We just have to dig a little deeper, right? Any other thoughts on this significance for us to I, be described as living stones? I was thinking, or it says here that now that we're living stones, we are to build his house. So part of that building, right, is this, and how we build it is what he's already told us, which is engagement, right, and desire and allowing this word, right, to get into us and change us, just like that. We're the living stone, the water of the word now washes through us, and we are changed, right? Good. What else? I'm struck also by the, how communal this is, that, I mean, this, this is the thing we talk about, we gloss over this in the U.S., that's like your personal walk with God. A stone is not a building, mm -hmm. and he's clearly saying you're becoming a building, yeah. and you don't stones plural. Yeah, you don't just yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah. It has it doesn't do anything That's unless right. it's with the other stones. That's well said. Yeah, it's got to be all put together. And then, of course, then the imagery then is um, that Jesus then is pictured as the cornerstone. So, in a building, what function does a cornerstone have? I've watched this happen in Uganda, by the way, because I've never seen buildings built from scratch. The top of the arch, right? That's no. different. It's foundation. It's where everything is going to be spread out from. Yeah, so it is. It, we have architects here. Yeah. How would you best describe it? Like that cornerstone is the piece from which everything else is measured. Yeah, everything else has to come from that point. I mean, I think that's what everybody was basically saying. Right, so you have this point, and once that piece is established, and that's true and straight and plumb and everything else that you want, then everything is done in relationship to that. So all of the living stones, they could just be in a pile. We could just be all in a pile. It's not until that cornerstone is placed, and then we're put in that proper position, like in relation to that cornerstone, right? Then we become a building, or potentially become a building, right? Yeah. What theological and spiritual weight does this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone carry when it's used about Jesus? What kind of theological weight does that carry? I mean, what's Peter doing here? He's declaring Jesus' position. He's the what? Declaring Jesus' position. Okay. The most important. The most important stone in it. Without that stone, there is no building. What else? Kind of using another analogy, it's kind of showing what your true north, your true north is going to be. Okay. It's going to be something that's like, all right, I know that I'm going to be in line with Christ when I fall after this because He is going to put me on on straight and narrow, so to speak. True. And without that stone, there there wouldn't be a um, a sound building. You could build something without a cornerstone; it would be it, it wouldn't. Yeah. 
so it wouldn't be sound without Jesus. It's it's fun because uh, a couple of times I've been like you know working on buildings there in Uganda. I've been like I'm going to do some masonry work, right? And and the tools are very basic, right? You know, I have a plumb line, and you have a board, and you have for level you have water, a water tube, right? And so he'll be like, okay, so you you, you do this corner, right? and I'll work for like 45 minutes to an hour, and I'll be and I'm like. I mean, this looks perfect, you know, and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking this is perfect. And Peter, our builder, kind of walks over and he goes, you are baby class one. <laughs> I'm like, look, no, it's perfectly plumb and square. He's like, let me check. And then he puts it down. He's like, no, you see, the water isn't right here. This is off. I was like, it looks perfectly fine. But he's like, yeah, it's fine, but come over here. And by the time you get to here, now you're going to be off by whatever. You know this, right? So, and then I'm like, okay. Baby class one. <laughs> I'm back to baby class. Baby class is like uh, pre-kindergarten. Like, so you, have, you have three classes of kindergarten. Baby, middle, and top class. I wasn't even top class. I was baby class, right? All right, and then one other thing. He talks about uh, Peter calls followers of Jesus holy priests. So what's the role of a priest? What's the role of a priest in the First Testament? Communicates with God for the people. All right. He receives messages from God, takes them to the people, takes God's, uh, takes the people's prayers and sacrifices to God. Yeah. So, yeah. So he both receives messages, right? But he's communicating. So he is the in between, the go between. So he represents the people before God, and he represents God before the people. All right. That's the imagery. We are. He calls us holy, which is. Hagios, which is separated or set apart, right? We are holy priests. So how do we act in this role with fellow followers of Jesus? In other words, if this is one of our roles, how does that happen? How are we representing the people around us and each other to God and vice versa, God to the people around us? Well, what, what is going to, I hope, help me is... Uh, I've gotten to read, I'm reading through the Torah, because that, that's what I'm trying to follow the Jewish way here. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, we read about the, the priestly garments. Yep. And one of the priestly garments is the, the turban, and then it has this, they, they call it a signet, but it's like a tiara or a crown or whatever, but it says holiness to the Lord across your forehead. So it's like this is this is what my mind is supposed to be. I am supposed to be holy to the Lord, and if I can keep that in my mind, that that's going to help me in in the way I interact with with other people and stuff. Yeah, because that's the first thing they're going to notice about you. Here's the sign that says we're holy to the Lord. We're Christians. We're holy to the Lord. He also uses the term. Chosen people, royal priests, holy nation, God's own possession, all of those, when we think about it, they define and they describe the ministry that we have as Christ's disciples, right? So it immediately gets rid of that whole um, idea that we're saved for the hereafter, you know, this whole escape mentality and theology that's there. It's like, okay, so now I've punched my ticket, so now I'm good, and instead it says, no... You may have your ticket punched. You didn't punch your ticket. Someone did for you. And as a result of that, you now occupy this position. 
And this is like basically our job description, right? Mm -hmm. Chosen people, royal priests, holy nation, God's own possession. But you get ordained and anointed as a priest, and that's that's where Jesus did all of that, being the perfect sacrifice and everything that he he made us to be able to be into his priesthood. Right. And, and that also kind of means that for verse 1 for me... Uh, the, the, this is the, the checklist that I should not be acting like because right. I am supposed to be holy. Yeah, holy to the <laughs> Lord doesn't match up well with envy, envy and all of those other things. That's the stuff we have to get rid of to make room for these things that need to describe who we are. Right? So we have to sometimes empty space. All right, so now we get to the A, the applying piece, all right, where we wrestle with the implications. And we've done a little bit of that, but let's dig a little bit deeper. So I'm going to pick just a couple or three implications, and, and we'll see where this leads us. Okay, so one implication I see in the passage is that we all need to mature and grow intellectually, emotionally, spiritually in our spiritual formation. I mean, that's kind of the implication, right? There is this thing that you need to be doing. Alright? So, without seeking to be judgmental, it does appear to me that oftentimes many perceive, people outside, perceive both the Christian faith in general and, and our participation in the church family, like the community faith like we're doing today, as a list of items that need to just be checked off. Like, we could fall into that, like, church, Bible reading is something that we can check off rather than like life transforming events like being together means that we're changed engaging with the scripture means that we're changed right so my question is why is it this way in other words why is it that we so easily fall into the checklist mentality about this and it becomes so prevalent in what it means to be a follower of jesus i go to church i open up the word of God, all of these things, but yet not using the desire word, but treating it more like a checklist. Why is that? And how do we encourage each other to develop that kind of desire? So this is that desire question, right? So why is it that we fall into that checkbox mentality? How do we increase that appetite, that desire to do it? I think checkbox is you don't have to think about it. All you have to do is go, oh, I got up, I prayed, check. Oh, I wrote my scripture, check. Oh, I, so if you don't have to think about it. And so it's not really, a checklist doesn't transform. All it does is just say, I accomplished a task. I think that when you have that desire and you, you start to really work on that, it gives you, it's like you can't go without it. It's not just about a checklist because in your walk, you may deviate from that checklist. It doesn't stop there it transforms and allows you to help others transform with those kinds of things. I think it's because we don't like ambiguity. So because we, the checklist gives you a clear path of what you need to get done. When you don't know exactly the process of doing it, you're like, well, am I doing this or am I not? So, so it's also, taking something that could be helpful and we've turned it into the end goal instead of a tool to get us there. Yeah, uh, one second, go ahead. I do want to say though, 
behaviorally speaking, I think checklists are good starting yep. points because when you start to do something on a daily basis, like exercising, you don't want to at first, but then once it becomes a habit, then your body is like, oh, I want it. I'm ready to do this. Today. So what you're suggesting, if I hear you, is that part of the process of increasing that desire is once you get into the habit of doing something, it becomes something that you want to do because you begin to see results when you begin to see results from it. Is yeah. that the key, having to see results from it? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, That's what good. is it, 30 days to create a habit and one day to lose the habit? Well, so it's I, I, most people say it's 40, but yeah, you've got the idea. It's like yeah. a 40 day process to get something and it's pretty easy to break away, okay. I think that also depends on the kind of person that you're talking to. Like Erica was saying, for her a checklist works well for other people it might not work as well for those other people i think it kind of turns it into a spiritual mundane activity right. or a dogma a dogma okay a spiritual Good comparison spiritual comparison yeah yeah, yeah Mike. Back to, um, to on that why thing could any part of it be have to do with our Western culture of accomplishments and success and goal setting and achieving and things like that. And, and please make sure that we understand. I think we're all being clear. There's not the act of getting up every morning or once a day or whatever and doing these things as a discipline is a good thing. But even a good thing can just become rote if that's all it is. If it's all just I got up and did this. Now you were trying to, you were getting ready to say something. So go ahead. So we start off as infants, and then as we grow, we encounter trials. In this world, there are trials, and how do you deal with them? So I think these checklists are giving us tools to direct us to God's help and how we get through our trials. That's good. Jason. I would also, so the kind of going back to the, the infancy of our sort of position, at least initially, is that because we are dependent, you know, it, it says that no one comes to the Lord except through me. Um, and this is something that, that I did in a previous church. There was a book that essentially described uh, spiritual training exercises, which was not to say that you can make yourself desire the Lord. The Spirit has to do that for you, but there are actions that you can take to present yourself as open for that work. And that's yes. sort of... Yeah, I like that we, word. We do these things so that we Spiritual training. prepare ourselves to be right. open to the work of the Spirit. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I think, too, with checklists, at first the checklists are developed to hold us accountable, but then we use that checklist to hold God accountable. <laughs> <laughs> and you told us to do, you said, if I did this, 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 and this, I did this, but, but I wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I hear what you're saying. No, I, I hear you exactly. Yeah. For me, it's kind of your approach you take to it. Um, if you're going to treat it like a job, it's going to be one thing. But you got to kind of determine what's of value to you, what you're passionate about. I heard an interview recently with Stuart Copeland, who's a drummer for the police. And he was talking about his kids, his own kids. And the difference in somebody who loves music and somebody who, he said, if you have a kid and you're pushing them towards music, if it's, you're having to remind them to practice, then that's probably not for them. But if you're having to say, can you take a break? Can you put that down for five minutes? Then yeah, you've got one that's going to be a musician. 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good way of thinking about it. That's true. And you mentioned uh, Jason that um, uh, that connection that called with Jesus piece, and I think that's the second implication. I think we could we should spend just a little bit of time on is you know it, the implication is that Jesus is the only foundation for a life of purpose, meaning, and connectedness to God. I mean that's my summation of the implication. One of the implications. So challenge with that, of course, is the world that we live in offers many, many, many a plethora of other foundations for life advertised as being equally or in some cases even more effective. Like, you don't need Jesus, you need fill in the blank. X, Y, Z. You know, a fulfilling job. Whatever it is, you, you fill in the blank. So my question is that here's what we wrestle with. So how do we follow Jesus as his disciples in such ways that lift up his foundation for life, like we demonstrate that he is the foundation for life in ways that inspire other people to do it. How do we do that? Because if he is the foundation and the center point from which everything, then how do we right, inspire other, our friends, our neighbors, those around us, to try that same foundation? How do we demonstrate that we're living from that foundation in such a way that other people go, that foundation is secure. I don't know if you already talked about this, but since Jesus is supposed to be the cornerstone, we're supposed to be shaped exactly like him to match him in his life. So in doing that, we can show others how to live as well, to live like Jesus, and just keep on building... Okay, so that's a great observation. But here's where we need to go. We can, okay, we need to live like Jesus. How many raise your hands for that? Yes, we do. What does that mean? I mean, and this is what I'm trying to get at with this question. So what does that mean if he is the foundation, if he is the cornerstone for us? How do we demonstrate that to other people? he responded in situations and we responded. Right, so looking at how we respond in situations... Good. the way that we behave and the way that we interact with other people should be different than someone who's not a follower in the way that they respond. Which is exactly what you were saying, but a specific... It's said better. But, no, 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 but a specifics. It's the specifics of, yeah, I need to act like Jesus. Okay. The how, first thing that... In how I respond, in reminding myself of that, go ahead. The first thing that popped into my mind was the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, strength, gentleness, self-control. And if we can do those things in front of others, then that is us trying to reflect God's perfect image and likeness. That's good. But it's not through us that that occurs. It's through the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're, you're moving to high school now. Yeah. You're, not, you're out of middle, middle school. That was awesome. There's a juxtaposition in, in this passage, too, because we, we're talking about Jesus being the cornerstone, but it also later, and I think it's verse 8, or no, verse 7, talks about us being a capstone. There's a, there's a transition and a change there for us that is also connected to that desire, because they're like much like in the same way that we have a desire to be lifted up by our peers, we should also desire for God to be lifting us up as that capstone and it sets us apart, but also at the same time is pointing directly back to him as the cornerstone. Right, and, and which ties beautifully with what you just said, maybe, because that fruit of the Spirit, that's not our, we don't produce fruit, right? We, our job in that analogy is not to produce the fruit, it's to what? Be the fruit. Well, we have to, yeah, we have to be the fruit, but we have to stay 
on the vine. Yeah, stay connected to the vine because right. the vine is the thing that nourishes us, right? That brings that, that fruit, right? So there's that, that direct connection to that. You think it affects how we should be treating others? Absolutely. Friends? Yeah. You think it's... What's more powerful? How we treat our friends because we are followers of Jesus or how we treat our enemies? I think your enemies. We shouldn't have enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't say that. I kind of like having an enemy once in a while. It's kind of nice. Uh, we don't. We don't. <coughs> we can have enemies, not by our choice. You don't want them to. Right. Yeah. What, what we want the enemy. So we, the enemy yeah. ought to be not because of something we've done, but because of the message of the gospel or Christianity or something, not our actions. If I hear you right. So when she says we shouldn't have enemies, well, that's kind of beyond our control. But how you treat them, right? We should not treat someone as an enemy. Is what yeah. I think I hear yeah. you saying. And yeah. you're saying some people will view us right as the enemy purely because we hold that view. So. Um, I would be curious how many here have experienced that. What? Mm -hmm. Having an enemy because of your belief in Christ? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think I ever have. Yeah. Maybe I'm not vocal enough. <laughs> Maybe I'm not. I don't think it's you're not vocal enough. I think a lot of times you don't know that someone's an enemy. Quite honestly, I think when you walk your faith, you scare a lot of people that. You know that are that become enemies because they're like, whoa, that guy's so different. You know, I'm. You know, it, I really think it scares them sometimes. I think it also comes from a self-labeling, like it, like you said, it's like it's not something that you create. It's something that's chosen by the other person to try and separate themselves. Like earlier this earlier this week, um, I met a guy who is self self-claiming is just a flaming atheist, like. I am putting myself opposite of you because you said you were a Christian. I'm placing myself opposite of you as an atheist. And it's not necessarily because I was creating him right. as an enemy. He was trying to set himself apart from a different belief system or non-belief system. Yeah, he's that's almost, uh, we've seen that, um, and that's, um, that's not all that discommon, uh, uncommon around this area because then we can create a distance. Don't bother sharing anything about your God because I don't believe in God God or God's period. So it's a delineating, it's a protection scheme on his part, right? Mm -hmm. To not have to deal with, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be antagonistic. You just, like, I don't believe in God. So don't bother talking, no God. I'm taking that off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, taking it completely off the plate. It's not even something we're going to communicate about. So his question then, um, shouldn't we also then spend our money and use our material resources differently? If we're followers of Jesus and Jesus is the cornerstone, that is that a little more challenging? Wait, now Jesus says we're supposed to treat our resources differently? How do we demonstrate that Jesus is our cornerstone that way? Tithe. <laughs> you think? I mean given to share. I mean there's sharing a certain yes, share. There's a certain discipline that's built there, right? By recognizing that not everything belongs I mean it nothing belongs to me it's given to me and so I'm returning back a portion there is a discipline there I think also responding to people in need when yeah. when you think about all of the different things that have happened and how we use our resource to respond when someone loses their someone in the colony their house burned down and so how the community responds to that 
how do we respond to natural disasters throughout the world as Christians that we go, we send funds, we do those kind of things because we're called to help. Finding those needs, I mean, you know, Uganda shoot trees, stuff like that. There's a need in Uganda and, you know, we as Christians are trying to help fulfill some of that need. And understanding where your money goes on a daily basis, the things that you're buying and what happens to create that product. Yeah, it's good. It's a stewardship of what's given to you. There's a time allocation here too, right? Allocating our, where we allocate our time and energy also says something about, right? If we believe that Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation is secure and all of that, then it should also then affect our what we put our time and energy and resources into, right? Mm-hmm. That's the implication, right? I also don't think that we are necessarily all called to, you know, sell everything we own and take up a cross quite literally and stand on a street corner, as some people do. Right. Um, but recognizing that where God has placed you and the resources he has provided for you are for the cause of furthering his kingdom. And we have to be open to the idea that we need to use our time, our position, our resources for that purpose and not just for ourselves. And gifts. Yeah. Yeah, using your gifts, talents, abilities. Well, and when the opportunity presents itself to speak. True. Well done. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.